0: Leave, believe Maria will be in the back because we have a new location. We're going, for going out the Church. back door now, kids. So. so raise your hand, Maria. All right. Save to sin no more. You know I'm looking forward to that. That's what we have to look forward to. Sometimes I think that's my, one of my greatest wishes. Lord, don't let me sin again. Right? So, we, and speaking of sin, here we go into the, the last of the three commandments, that, or the last three of the Ten Commandments. Um, and you see the title there on the screen. It begins in the mind. Last week we looked at the sixth and seventh commandments you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. This week we're going to look at the last three commandments. In my sermon last week, I mentioned a passage we would get back to today, and that is James 4, 1 and 2, which says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3 goes on to say, You do not ask the right way. Um, James really gets down to the heart of the matter here, doesn't he? And we may say the mind of the matter as well, right? And as we wrap up this multi-week study of the Ten Commandments, we will see that the violation of all the commandments may end in the action of violating those, the physical action of violating those commands, but it's beginnings, are in the mind. So let's lead, read the last three commandments, then we're going to dive deeper into them. You're fo- they're found uh, in Deuteronomy five. They're also found in Exodus 20, by the way. And if you want to learn more about the Exodus 20 version, go to Melissa's and Susie's class on Thursday nights, ladies, um, starting at verse 19 of chapter five, Deuteronomy, "And you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor." And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. One comment I want to make before we get into these is that throughout human history, human have, humans have tried to water down the commandments or make them less strict. We're going to see examples of this for each of the three commandments we're going to discuss this morning. But really, it happens with all the rules of God, doesn't it? Love your neighbor. Well, thank goodness my neighbors all share the same politics and religion with me um, so I can love them, right? Well, no. Well, some guy in Afghanistan certainly really isn't my neighbor, is he? He's too far away. And yet, if we really understand the Bible, what it says about who our neighbor is, It turns out that your neighbor is not limited to your physical proximity. Now, that might be the way we understand the word to mean for us. We generally say our neighbors, and we mean people that live somewhat close by, right? But Scripture shows that really our neighbors are all human beings, all human beings. We don't like the idea of loving all human beings, do we? So we try to define neighbor in some other way. This weaseling out of things was going on in Jesus' day too. People would ask Jesus questions, and you see this throughout the Gospels, some of those questions are recorded. Seemingly, sometimes those questions were made to find out what is the least I can do to keep the law. And when Jesus was asked about who one's neighbor was, he told the story of the Good Samaritan. And that story, I'm not going to go into that right now because that's not the lesson, but that story is about taking care of someone not like you, in fact, someone that you might be an enemy with otherwise, in not just taking care of them, but in an extravagant way, elevating the other person's needs above your own. And I'm pretty sure that the person who asked the question, who's my neighbor, and got the answer of the parable of the Samaritan, probably wished they hadn't asked the question. Oh, come on. Really? Because when Jesus was asked to clarify these questions, he just about always gave his listeners a higher standard than they expected. And not least of these is in the Sermon on the Mount. As we reflected on briefly last week, when Jesus said the sin of adultery happens in the mind, the sin of murder happens in the mind. And so we come to the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal... And we think we can find ourselves safe from its violation as long as we don't physically steal an object from somebody else. But the commandment is not limited to the physical theft of objects. In our hearts we know this. You could steal someone's reputation. You could steal someone's opportunities. You could take advantage of someone else's weaknesses to profit yourself. Why were the Jewish people commanded not to take interest on a loan to a fellow Israelite? Because it's easy to exploit people who, for whatever reason, are unable to provide for their temporary needs. And so in their desperation, they will agree to any terms to get that temporary need met, right? But there are many sharks who will take advantage of that, charging high interest or claiming the property of the one who is in debt. In fact, there's something about that, about the cloak. You're not supposed to keep it overnight if you took it as a guard against the debt. Um, so that the person could still sleep at night. There's all kinds of rules in Scripture about this. And in some cases, the worst cases, the person in debt ended up selling themselves as a slave. Taking advantage of someone by charging exorbitant interest might maybe be stealing no less than if you took the person's physical property. And the implications for this spread out into many areas. If a family has to move and they have to sell their house quickly, there's many companies, you see the billboards, they'll promise a quick sale, but far below market value. There are many ways in which taking advantage of someone's weak position may be tantamount to theft. One way this commandment was watered down over the centuries is by those who said, well, this commandment specifically is talking about theft of people. In other words, selling someone into slavery. There were actually a bunch of ancient rabbis who said that's what it was about. So think of Br- Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery. That would, in their mind, be a, a violation of this. But it doesn't really broadly mean stealing, is kind of what they thought, or they wanted to think. They knew in their hearts they were wrong. But, <laughs> but they said, oh, this is about human trafficking and nothing else. But this is not all that command is about. And as we hopefully are beginning to see, the bar for keeping these commands is much higher than most of us want to admit. We should keep in mind these laws are not there simply to say, uh, this is what gets you in trouble and here's what doesn't. Our human laws are like that. But God's laws are to be kept, we're to strive for perfection in them. Not just so we don't get in trouble, but because he's God. And the perfection we seek, or that we ought to seek, is not simply so we can stay out of the pokey. It's because we who are made in the image of God are representatives of him. So we are to reflect his nature, his communicable attributes, that is, the characteristics of his that we're able to share. You know, we call them communicable attributes. Like, we can't share omnipotence with God, but we can share kindness. That's an attribute that's communicable. That means we can have it as well. And we are to seek this perfection to bring him honor and glory. And because he's a holy God who has called us to be holy, we are to seek this perfection out of love and reverence and a desire to please him, not simply to do the least we can to technically keep his laws, but rather we're to live our lives in the spirit of these laws. So certainly the law against theft includes human trafficking, but it by no means is limited to that. And the scope of this commandment goes far beyond what we may usually consider. Now Calvin wrote a long section on this commandment and what it really means, and it was so brilliant. I've, and I've got several quotes here, and I don't usually quote this much from anything other than Scripture, but I couldn't have said it better. So Calvin included in his exposition or his elaboration of this commandment, not yet for that one Right, if you go back a slide, um, laws on usury, pledges, bribes, correct measures and weights, in moving a neighbor's landmark, returning lost property. I don't have this quote on screen, but the next one will be up, okay. So here's what Calvin said. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, he's quoting Exodus 22, 5, or lets his beast loose and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his vineyard. Also negligence, Exodus twenty-one thirty-three through 36. When a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, that then then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. And then also the laws that protect the weak and the poor from oppression provide release for slaves and ensure access to the needs of the poor, such as you're supposed to leave some grapes for the poor people to pick, you're supposed to leave some wheat for the poor people to glean, and that kind of thing. So Calvin connects all of these and other rules of the Bible into his dissertation on stealing, and God clearly sets up that the violation of these could be considered theft. In fact, Calvin, in a sense, attempts to reverse our thinking in this commandment from the negative you shall not to our positive responsibility for others. And here's the next quote, that one we should have. On screen for you. Since charity is the end of the law, we must seek the definition of theft from there. This, then, is the rule of charity that everyone's rights should be safely preserved and that none should do to another what he would not have done to himself. It follows, therefore, that not only are those thieves who secretly steal the property of others, but those also who seek for gain. From the loss of others, accumulate wealth by unlawful practices, and are more devoted to their private advantage than to equity. And then here's my last quote from Calvin. He says We must remember that a positive command, as it is called, is attached to the prohibition. If we merely refrain from all evil doing, we are far from satisfying God, who has bound men mutually together so that they may strive to help one another to get ahead by counseling and assisting one another. There is not the slightest doubt that God commands generosity and kindness and the other duties which give warmth to human society. Therefore, if we are not to be condemned as thieves by God, we must seek our brother's advantage no less than our own, End quote. And of course, theft may also invio- involve, as I mentioned earlier, stealing someone's reputation. And, that, and spreading rumors. And that leads to violating the ninth commandment, which we'll move right into. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Once again, we see how all these commandments are interrelated. Bearing false witness, that is, telling a lie about someone else, is a theft of reputation. And if it happens in court with a testimony that someone committed a crime they did not, and that crime is punishable by the death penalty, then the violation of the ninth command may very well make you guilty not only of bearing false witness, but murder as well. Now, let's talk for a moment again about how people have tried to water down the commandments over time, or they raise the bar of violating them. In this case, some have said, well, bear false witness, this command specifically means under oath. Or in a court setting. But one who would try to do this is making excuses as to why we can tell lies about someone if it isn't that serious. And certainly the command can be translated this way you shall not testify against your neighbor as a lying witness. That's one way it's been translated. And the penalties for violating this command were very severe. And I pointed this out back in May when, when I preached on the cities of refuge and how God is a God of justice the false witness was subject to whatever the penalty would have been to the one who was lied about. And we see this in Deuteronomy 19, starting at verse 15. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, here's what it says about false witnesses. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit such an evil among you. Your eye shall not have pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, I said that there are those who have attempted to convince themselves this only has to do with testifying in court. But clearly, that's not the limits of the spirit of this commandment. We do not like to point the finger toward ourselves, do we? And yet, there's another category of violation of the spirit of this command that has plagued many churches even, and that is gossip. John Maxwell says this about gossip. Gossip is the lowest level of communication. It is devious, often cloaking itself in spirituality. Gossips may assume a self-righteous attitude, saying, I don't mean to gossip about him, but... And off they go. Sometimes this gossip takes the form of false sympathy, as in, isn't it too bad that Mr. Wrong beats his wife? Very often this religious gossip sneaks into the prayer circle. We can usually recognize it. Oh, Lord, please help Mrs. Wrong to stop running around on Mr. Wrong even though he's sneaking out with Mrs. Bad. The Old Testament story in which Noah's son speaks wrongly of his father's drunkenness teaches us that the one who talks about another's sin is worse than the one who actually committed the sin. Of the seven things God hates in Proverbs six, sixteen to nineteen, three relate to the tongue. So since Maxwell quoted that, I'll go to Proverbs six, sixteen through nineteen. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him: haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, that's kind of negative, so I think it's good to put a positive commandment or exhortation next to the negative. So let's look at a couple other Proverbs because these give us a positive here so that we can look at this commandment not only in what we should not do, but also in what we should do. So first is Proverbs 14, 5. A faithful witness does not lie. So here's the positive. A faithful witness doesn't lie. Hopefully, we would desire to be faithful witnesses. And then in 1425 of Proverbs says, A truthful witness saves lives. Here we see that truth telling is life giving, and lying is the opposite, right? And then we see in Zechariah 8.16, these are things you should do, you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Ephesians 4.25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And remember who your neighbor is? Everyone, everyone's your neighbor. So that means be honest with everyone. Speak the truth to your neighbor for we were members one of the other. So then, let it be said of us, as Jesus said of Nathanael in John 1, 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. May that be said of us, there, there's no deceit in them. Now, as we've looked at, so far at the first nine commandments, we turn to the tenth. And indeed, this command is directly linked to all the others. This command tells us that the sin of breaking God's commandments really begins in the mind. Deuteronomy 5.21, And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. We can see two other commandments here directly linked. Coveting your neighbor's wife may lead to a violation of the seventh command. You shall not commit adultery. And coveting your neighbor's other things may lead you to steal and violate that command. But the key here is that the sin of the tenth command is not something you do with your hands or with your mouth or with your body. It happens in your mind. The sin happens in your thoughts. But there have been some who, over the history of mankind, wrestling with these commandments, have said that covet doesn't mean your thoughts alone. You only start violating this when you start scheming or maneuvering to obtain the things you covet. How people have tried to weasel out of this commandment. By raising the bar of what constitutes a violation, they weakened the spirit of this law. But Jesus corrected this attitude. To violate the spirit of this law, no action, no scheming or maneuvering is required. To violate the spirit of this law, all you have to do is think. This is a commandment that is violated purely in the thoughts of the person. And so how safe may one feel in having thoughts and not deeds because nobody else is seeing it, right? Nobody's going to call me out on that because you don't know what I'm thinking. Yet that feeling of safety in this example is self-delusion. It's irrational, since the God who commanded certainly knows what's in the hearts of men. And I quote again John Maxwell. He said, The first nine commandments deal with outward actions. They can be seen, therefore judged. This commandment deals with inner motives. If this last commandment were kept, the first nine would never be broken. We cannot deal with the outward actions without first dealing with our own hearts. In other words, adultery never just happens. It begins when a person allows himself or herself to feed on his or her lust. People slander others because they are jealous and malicious. Murderers permit anger to well up inside before they strike. An outward sin was never committed that did not first begin with an inward thought. End quote. So we're going to wrap up the Ten Commandments where I began this morning. James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Just spend it on your passions. Every sin... Every breaking of God's commandments begins in our minds. Our minds are where the beginnings are of every sin. Do you know that our brain is the organ in our body that uses the most energy and the most blood? 20 to 25% of our blood is pumped from our heart to our brain, and the brain consumes up to 20% of all our energy. And it is our brain that's the beginning of all of our trouble. Because the brain in fallen humans, which we all are, is deeply troubled. Jeremiah wrote about it. You probably know this verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, he answers the question directly, doesn't he? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And God knows what's in our hearts, Psalm 139, nine two. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Jesus knew what men were thinking. Matthew 9, 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? And again, in John two twenty four and 25, Jesus did not, Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. How, then, do we even begin to obey God's commands? We realize at this point how many we're guilty of, either in the deed or in the thought. What are we to do? If the Spirit of the Lord is convicting our hearts of our sin through his word this morning, then how do we respond? How can we be free? First off, repent and believe the gospel. You may say, I've done this. Yet I remain in the struggle of sin. Well, you're in good company. For even the apostle Paul wrestled with his impulse to sin. Romans 7, starting at verse 15, Paul writes, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. How many of us have felt like this at times? I don't want to sin, but I end up doing it. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And by the way, I don't know if this is true or not. I read this in a commentary years ago that there was sometimes a very cruel punishment for someone that committed a crime that ended in the death of another person, they would chain that person to the corpse of the other person until they died of the rot and gangrene that would eventually get on them. And there are some people that think that as Paul wrote that, that's what he was referring to, who will save me from this body of death because that's what your sin is, right? Bound to you. But Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He answers his own question immediately. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And Paul continues on to show us that though we are sinners who are still actively fighting that battle, including the lost battles, we who are in Christ need not be afraid the righteousness of Christ imputed on believers, the blood of Christ cleansing our sin, causes us to be able to stand upright and in the very presence of God to know this truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are charged by God to keep his commands. He has the authority to declare to all his creation what he demands from us, what our standards should be, how we think and act morally. He decides what's the correct order of things from the family to marriage. He's the creator. He created all things. When you create things, you get to decide what to do with it. If you are gifted in cooking or baking, and you prepare something wonderful you get to decide what to do with it if you're creative with the woodworking and you make a beautiful piece of fi- furniture you get to decide what to do with it if you love gardening and growing plants and trees and you lovingly grow some fruit or flowers or vegetables you get to decide to do with it but by the way i noticed that someone decided to put some beautiful plants up here i suspect i know who it is the creator gets to decide God created the world, and He gets to decide what is best, and He decides what is best in His moral law, which is not only written down in these commands and in other scriptures, it is written on our hearts. Scripture tells us that in Romans two, Jeremiah 31, Hebrews eight, Hebrews 10, and it it's implied in many other psalms and scriptures as well. He's written His law on our hearts. And his law is not written only on the hearts of Jews, not only on the hearts of Christians. His law is written on the hearts of all mankind. He is the creator, we are the creatures, and we are subject to all his laws and decisions and his sovereignty. So every man, woman, and child is subject to these laws and will be held accountable to them. On the judgment day, Each will stand before God and be held to account. And that is a good reason to keep God's commands. Yet we know that no one has done so perfectly. But still, it's better for you to attempt to keep them than to not attempt to keep them. Because there are both temporal, that means now, consequences and eternal consequences for us, missing the mark. But the judgment will go far better for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. We who have been called into faith are set free from the eternal damnation we would otherwise be deserving as creatures who refuse to acknowledge their Creator. So every human has a motivation to obey God because He is Creator and lawgiver. And the believer wants to obey God for that reason as well. But for the believer, the reason goes even further. For the believer, obedience is love. Jesus said, John fourteen fifteen. if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John fourteen twenty one. whoever has my commandments and keeps, him, keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then in verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then in John 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then John wrote in 1 John 1.5.3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And then again in 2 John verse 6, he says, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. We owe God allegiance and obedience because he is creator. But we get to add love for him as our motivating factor in keeping his commands. His commands are not burdensome. What that means is that when we have the proper motivation, we will want to do them. And we will better understand the benefits of doing them. When we're children, we learn many things that we see no benefit in in as we're learning them. Then at some point in life, it starts to make sense. As Christians, we must work to learn and understand. Learn to love his ways. Understand that he knows what is best. So he has given us direction for things that are good for us, and it begins in the mind. So how do we keep our mind in obedience to the scriptures? Colossians 3, 2 Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are earth. Well, that's good advice. Romans 8, 5, and 6, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of, on the Spirit is life and peace. 2 Corinthians ten five: We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I've never been asked this in my a little over one year here at Oasis Church. But in past years, I've been asked, why do you use so much scripture? One guy literally said this. Why can't you just read a verse and then talk to us? And no one here has asked that. But in case someone listening has thought it, and this morning especially, I've used a lot of scripture. Well, here, the reason is very simple. I don't want anyone leaving here talking or thinking about what Jason said. I want you to leave here having heard from God. I don't want followers. I want you to follow Jesus and his word. The reason I use a lot of scriptures is because it must be clear to all of us that this is not a religion led by a pastor or a governing board or an elder board. It is a church led by Christ and Christ alone. Who Colossians 1.18 says... He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And if you want to know what preeminent means, talk to Tanisha. Right? Was that your first book you read for college, right? See, I remember that. I believe that all of the Bible points to Jesus, it's about him. The Ten Commandments are about him. He's the only one who kept them. So let us strive to keep them for the two reasons I gave. One, that he's the creator and has sovereign rights over his creation to rule and reign, and you are subject to that rule and reign. And second, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you claim to love him, and you claim his love for you, then you will keep his command. And what do you do when you fail repent and believe the gospel amen let's pray lord thank you thank you for your word this morning lord it has challenged me and it's encouraged me at the same time i'm challenged because i see that 10th commandment especially and i know that my thoughts are not always in alignment with your will but I'm also encouraged, Lord, because I, I realize that like Paul, who struggled with the battle against sin, came to that conclusion, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My prayer, Lord, this morning is that your word has touched hearts. If anyone here has not understood your word or put faith in you, I pray that your Holy Spirit and your word will work to draw them unto yourself. And Lord, for those of us who have put faith in you and claim to love you, may we take seriously what Jesus said, that if you love me, you keep my commandments. May we each examine ourselves, Lord, to see how we're doing. May we not be afraid to look at the law, which is a mirror to our own hearts and shows us our sin, but let us look at it knowing that when we are revealed to be sinning, we can now confess it and be clear before you. Lord, our sin is like that body of death Paul talked about, but you saved us from it. I rejoice in that. Thank you, Lord. May we all put faith in you and be encouraged in our hearts to know that as Brandon started the service with, you've sealed us. That seal, Lord, that Ephesians says the Holy Spirit sealed us, I thank God that nothing the Holy Spirit seals can become unsealed. And so we can rest, Lord. That even though we fail, you do the work of continuing to preserve us for salvation. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.